Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here with us for episode 57. Please feel free to ignore Dan over there breaking down. <laughs> I've been especially funny leading up to this episode, and he has not been able to handle it. It's true. So today not on purpose, but, but yes, you've been especially funny. Intentions are irrelevant. <laughs> I'm a man of action. So today we wanted to expand a little bit on our Afghanistan episode. Here we are a couple of weeks later, and the uh, uh, Biden's military operation to to go in and secure the airport and and get those who need to leave out has has basically concluded. And what's what's so terrible is that that operation was an ad hoc, basically rescue mission after his initial withdrawal went so terribly. And yet even after that mission, there are still many people stuck in Afghanistan who need to get out. You know, one of the things that, that we noticed in the, the last two weeks is, is that there have been private organizations that have, that have organized, raised money, and gotten many people out that the military was not able to get out. Um, one of those groups that's gotten... A lot of recognition is one that was that was at least partially uh, uh, sponsored by Glenn Beck, and and that group got out quite a few people um, until very recently, where the Taliban has actually grounded those planes that they were using and is no longer allowing anyone to leave until they're able to negotiate something with the U.S. government, and so they're basically holding even those those private groups hostage in order to to gain recognition and thus legitimacy from the US government. So so by my reckoning that's you know the third the third wave of attempted rescue here in Afghanistan which has now come to a halt as well and there are still people in Afghanistan and including Americans who need to get out who have not been able to get out. I believe uh that organization has said that they have over a thousand you know, uh, individuals on a manifest waiting to get out with over a hundred of those being American citizens. So mm -hmm. regardless of how the White House is portraying it, to argue that this is in any way resolved is inaccurate, that this has been so messy and now we're weeks in and it's it may have settled. You know, things are not happening at the same pace they were before. But this is not a this is not even a a secondary happy outcome. This is this is this is just a mess. This is truly, truly. Uh, I mean, I honestly, I would say it's disturbing that that we can't even we can't even retreat effectively. Yes, yeah. We we when we were making an episode last time talking about Afghanistan, this this episode will provide further context for U.S. foreign policy in general. But but in particular around Afghanistan, I was reticent to to de to determine the level of blame that falls on uh, our military leaders and on the president. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, it had been, it had been literally like two days, I think, when we, when we first started talking about it. It had been just, just a very short amount of time. Um, I guess it, had been, it must have been longer than that that we were withdrawing. But, but in terms of like the collapse of the Afghani government, um, that was all very much happening as we were, as we were talking about mm -hmm. it. And it, in those circumstances, if, if I'm going to judge someone, I want to judge them as fairly as I can. And to do that, I need to know what they knew or should have known when they made their decisions, right? You don't judge people based on some 
some abstract standard outside of them. You judge them based on what they knew at the time uh, and and how well they they made the call based on what they knew. And so I was I was hesitant to to and, put too and, much blame in any particular that, place. We were focusing last episode on on the discussion of whether or not we should leave Afghanistan, talking about the political incentives and a lot of that yes. versus talking about specifically the withdrawal. The execution, of, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That that we we were talking about how the US really shouldn't blame Biden for honoring their wishes. Because the US unilaterally, I mean the vast majority of the United States wanted us to leave Afghanistan. And that's why Trump made the plan to leave Afghanistan. And that's why Biden followed through with that plan. Right. Right. You could, there, there's a world in which Biden makes the best decisions he can based on the information he has and things go extremely bad. That's not what happened. There were a variety of very poor decisions based on the information he had and very poor execution, uh, the military levels and just the tactical decisions don't make any sense uh, that that in a lot of these decisions ended up leading to us having, you know, just depending on the people who are there to let us leave. And yeah, that, that, yeah, that the, yeah, it was, it never, was truly being controlled by the Taliban. We were able to leave because the Taliban let us and for no other reason. And that's an interesting place for, for the U S military to be. And definitely, Definitely a failing on our part, and that's evidenced yes, by the fact didn't have that there that are still people who can't get out because the Taliban won't let them leave. Because yes. the Taliban is calling the shots, not the United States. The United States is not negotiating from a position of strength. Yes, yes. And that and is definitely a failing of the U.S., you know, the, the executive office and the military, absolutely. Yeah, the most simple example I've heard, and I don't know the details around this, was was, but it was basically due to decreasing the number of soldiers, we can only hold so much ground, and we decided to abandon the airport in favor of other places. Uh, that was a that was a mistake. You, we needed access to an airport clearly, and to our own uh, that we controlled and could do what we needed to do with. Um, and if we had that, this would look very different. That that one thing alone is a significant. Uh, you know, it was, it was an arbitrary number of soldiers that was made based on a political goal driven mm -hmm. largely by Biden. Um, that then the, the generals are like, okay, well, if we're going to do that, then we have to cut here, here. And then they mm -hmm. decided mm -hmm. this decision with the president and things. Anyway, just a series of, of bad decisions. That's not going to be the focus of this episode, but it is worth noting that, that it's looked really bad and it is to a large degree the fault of the people in power that it's ended up that way. Absolutely. It is. There's a reason that Biden's poll points have dropped, I think, 14% when I checked. That was days ago at this point. That's a huge drop. He'd gone from above 50 to, uh, to low 40s, if I remember correctly. And that's, it's not that surprising and it may even be warranted, right? That's, that's, this is clearly mistakes, clearly mistakes that he was a fundamental part of and, and maybe even the, the primary driving force. Often he was, the tactical decisions and errors were made because of arbitrary political goals that he'd set up. And anyway, the way things came together is, I think, largely on his shoulders. And maybe it would have looked bad if we withdrew in a different way, but it didn't have to look this bad. Didn't have to be so poorly done. But that brings us to the to the the broader picture that we'd like to discuss, which is something we touched on and and, and briefly mentioned in our last Afghanistan. 
Afghanistan episode, and that's a discussion of U.S. foreign policy in general. You know, why do we go to war? What do we do when we go to war? And what have we done in the past? And so that's what we want to look at today is is U.S. foreign policy in general. Take a look at some of the past historical examples and see what we can learn from them. Right, right. Because the question, one of the main questions that's keep coming up with, uh, especially among people who thought we should have stayed there, and I think there's a real case that can be made. We talked about this a little bit last time, mm-hmm. or with the, with our former episode that that if we're already spending a vast amount of resources on foreign policy and to put soldiers around the globe, you know, in various places, yeah, why and not there are thousands of them, them, why not there? Yeah, why why is this different when this is clearly more beneficial to so many people than other places? And, I, and that, that's a, I think there's a very good practical case for that. Um, one I disagree with ultimately for other reasons, but it's a, but if I, if I, I do accept that we're going to be around and we're going to have bases, that one is a good one. That seemed like a one we should have kept. Um, but that aside, one of the things that I hear people talk about, especially, especially conservatives, um, <laughs> I heard a guy talk about, uh, the, the fact that the U.S. is an empire and almost always has been, and should get over it and start acting like one. (laughs) If you're going to have territories that you effectively control around the world, including places, though, including places like uh, South Korea and Japan, though we don't control them directly, we, we have uh, a significant amount of their military power and different things. And there are other places where we do control them more directly. Is it Puerto Rico that we, Mm -hmm. that's ours? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, and others, uh, the Philippines is heavily dependent on us still from when we did control it, uh, for many years and, and on and on. Um, and we should, and that these people will argue that's not a bad thing. What's a bad thing is that we keep pretending we're not. And so we get this talk of like endless wars when there actually weren't that many people dying in Afghanistan. There'd been, been over a year since anyone had died. And, uh, this idea that, and, and the disconnect is they see it, the disconnect between these people who want a foreign policy that does these kind of things and those who don't, is that the leaders aren't making a good enough case for American interests. This is the kind of thing that Ben Shapiro will say. Say we, they never effectively made the case to the, to the U.S. voter about why we were in Afghanistan and the good we were doing there. And specifically, not just, not just altruistic good, but the good for us. Mm-hmm. This was a mm-hmm. good thing for America, for our interests. And that if that case had been made well, then you wouldn't have had 70% of the population pro withdraw from Afghanistan. Yeah, that case was definitely not made well. It, it was not made well. If it the, was made. If it, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it may have been the worst case ever made by political leaders. If they saw there was a case, they should have attempted to make one. Um. But whatever, whatever the reasons were, whatever strategic reasons or tactical or diplomatic reasons they saw people like Ben Shapiro see in us being there, the case was not made. And thus political support fell over time. Um, someone might have been Ben Shapiro who noted that really the American people have a will that lasts about four years. And then you can, you've got, if you've got their attention, you can keep it for about four years and then something else needs to happen. It needs to change. It needs to be over. Uh, and there's some truth to that. Democracies are notoriously hard to unite. That was Biden's entire campaign was around the, the slogan, you know, unity and trying to, trying to make 
a very, very split country, at least appear to be one. And we've, one of the thing, one of the few cases where I think you will get perfect unity is in a true defensive war of our homeland. If we were attacked, you would get unity. You would get a universal response to defense. Maybe not everybody, right? But, but, but near wide enough, enough mm-hmm. wide enough that, that it would be effectively unity, 80, 90%. Mm-hmm. And that's more than enough. And they would be very passionate about it. That is the one area of war we can agree on 100% of the time. You've, you're going to have that pretty consistently that the U.S. will defend itself if we were attacked. But there's a really interesting story behind all the other wars that we've been in where we're not defending ourselves, where we're either defending someone else or we're attacking somebody for various reasons in a semi-defensive, at least pitched as a defensive war. And that there is, I think, fundamentally a disconnect between the public people, the public, the politicians. I say public people because it's, it, this is true in any country, not just ours. Mm-hmm. But between the politicians in the U.S. and the U.S. citizen, there is a disconnect in their interests that I think is is permanent and will and unavoidable, where the normal person does not want war, and the political figure has a variety of reasons to want it that are not that the normal person just doesn't. Um, one and, of the things that uh, go ahead, go ahead. Please. No, I was, I was I was just gonna jump the shark here and say the. Which brings us to a to a quote that we wanted to share. Um, that's actually from Herman uh, Herman Goering, who was a uh, one of the top Nazi officials during World War II. You know, basically Hitler's right hand man, and they actually had a discussion with him. He was a intelligence officer who could speak German, who came and interviewed with him while he was waiting for his trial at Nuremberg and talked to him about why he did what he did, you know, what happened during all yeah. of this time. You know, I mean, we're talking about the the one government and the one war that everyone can agree was done. You know, everyone can agree <laughs> right, right, right. that the Nazis were on the wrong side of everything. Not just history, but <laughs> of existence. But, but existence, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a reason why for the past, you know, you know, the past 70, 70 years, years, they have yeah. been the go-to bad guy. Because why not? Because you don't have to worry about large groups of neo-Nazis boycotting your your movie or your book or whatever. Yeah, no gray moral lines here, generally mm-hmm, speaking. At mm-hmm. this tiny fringe group, and everybody else is 100% on board. Yeah, Gustav Gilbert, the guy interviewing here, is a, you mentioned he's an intelligence officer. He's also a psychologist. This must have been some of the most interesting, you know, psychological interviews ever. No kidding. To be able to talk to these kind of people, to be like, why? And, and to have free access to them like he did. But but they, they get to an interesting point of discussion, which is about the German people and why they were involved in this war. And uh, this is uh, Gustav Gilbert speaking. We got around to the subject of war again, and I said that, contrary to his attitude, I did not think that the common people are very thankful for leaders who bring them war and discussion. Obvious. Destruction. And Discussion. Uh, <laughs> and then... Uh, 
Goering responds, why of course the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along. Whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Now, of course, uh, Gilbert has a disagreement with that. He says, there is, one diff- there is one difference, I pointed out. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives. In the United States, only Congress can declare wars. To which Goering responds, oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. And for for anyone who uh, who's, you know, studied Germany specifically, in terms of history of World War II, you'll know that that's, that that's the truth. That these German soldiers who were enlisted, they were not told, okay, here is our prerogative. We have a two-part plan. The first part is genocide, and the second part is world domination. You know, that is what we're here for. Sign on the dotted line. Let's go, you know, eliminate races and also conquer the world. <laughs> that that was not the argument that was made. That that, that most pitch would Germans, have fallen flat. Yeah, that, that would have that, fallen flat. The Germans were not crazy, and they were not just some bloodthirsty lunatics. Yeah, that Germans were operating with an understanding that they were doing this because they had to. There were forces that were operating against Germany's best interests. That they were under threat of being attacked. That they were under threat of losing who they were as a people. And they had to do something to resist that. And, you know, you can go back and you can listen to Hitler's speeches and not everything is something we'd agree with today. But it doesn't change the fact that when Hitler pitched the, you know, the many the the many actions that he instigated, there was always a reason that made sense to the people. Yes. Yes. It may not have been an honest one, like you're saying. There's a lot of things that factually we probably wouldn't agree with. That, but he's he is arguing that their war is is fundamentally defensive. And he's drawing a go ahead. No, sorry, I cut you off. You can finish your thought. I was just I was just gonna say that he's drawing on the fact that if you're a politician and you know that people will f- support a defensive war, then you know the kind of arguments you need to make. And that's exactly what Goring's asserting here, right? He's he's making a historical claim, and he's and he, he's making it broad. He says it works the same in every country. Your type of government doesn't matter. Your, uh, you know, how exactly war is declared is not important. The leaders determine the policy, and they can get the people to follow along. And they do it by arguing that it's a defensive war. They say we're being attacked. If you're against the war, you're not patriotic enough. Right? That's the two the two steps. <laughs> you're being attacked. And patriotism. Yeah, and, and what Goering's doing here is he's acknowledging that there's always going to be a disconnect between political leaders and the people. And he's making a broader argument about humanity in general, that in general, 
people don't want to fight in a war. People don't want to fight in general. And, uh, which is something that I think sometimes we forget, but it's something that we all intrinsically understand as we all continue to not fight on a regular basis. Yeah, you know, um, and you think about sending your children. Right? Mm-hmm, if you have kids, mm-hmm. this is very intuitive. You do not want your children to end up going to war. But this, this leads me to a broader assertion that I haven't actually talked to you about, Dan, but I'm going to go ahead and just make while we're here, which oh, is that, that Often the United States is portrayed as this isolationist country. This is full of isolationists that are unusual. It's unusual that the United States is so isolationary and it's so counter counterproductive to the world that, that we have so many isolationists here in the United States. And I'm going to say that that's, that's – I mean it, in some ways it's true, but mostly it's just wrong. That really in the United States, what we have is a whole bunch of people who don't want to – be involved in a war just like everyone else across the world that that is not unique to us that desire to not mm-hmm. to not lose our lives in war it's not unique to the united states in any way shape or form but rather that the reason the united states has been involved in as few wars as it has is simply because of the fact that we do have and we've have had this democratic government so that they have to listen to the will of the people to some degree or another, combined with the fact that because the United States has been so far distant from so many threats, there has been fewer reasons, fewer excuses for the United States to get involved. And and if you go back and you look at historical examples, that starts to become clear. Um So we're taking, in some sense, we're taking his speech and the claims he makes and we're and we're going to argue that he's absolutely right. Thank you, Dan, for saying and that. that he's not than I just did. and that he's not just right, but you can see it in our historical wars. That there's a disconnect between the people and the politicians, and the politicians win that matchup. <laughs> the politicians can bring the people to do their bidding by doing precisely what he tells them to do, but precisely what Herman Goring describes. And that, as Brad was saying, the, if there, if there is a benefit, I agree with the, I don't know how much our, our form of government has helped, but I, I'm absolutely positive that our distance has. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's just a little, just a little harder to get into wars when they're across the ocean. That's <laughs> a little, it's easier, it's convenient to us that we are so much more powerful than our neighbors. And so no war is likely. And and the evidence becomes clear when you realize that the United States has gone to war with every single country that it borders, both of them. That 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 we have gone to war against yeah, Canada, we and we have wars. gone to war <laughs> against Mexico, and people forget that in the War of eighteen twelve, this is just years after the country was formed. Britain controlled Canada. Canada was a was a, a colony of of Britons. I don't know if they still call them colonies at that point. But it's a territory that was controlled by Britain, but did have some independence, like America did before it before it separated. The United States war, the United States war, the United States goes to war against Great Britain due to the British Navy uh, forcing. It's complicated. It has to do with with naval matters and with trade and all of these things, and and Britain encroaching on the U.S.'s uh, sovereignty as well as some bases that Britain had in American territories. 
But they go to war, and during that war, the U.S. actually invades Canada. And, of course, they argue that that's to get back at Great Britain, but it's also clear that it's a land grab, that they're trying to expand U.S. territory into Canada, and the war against Great Britain is a great excuse to do so. It goes terribly, and that's needless to say that that was a very embarrassing, (laughs) very embarrassing American history, which is part of why it's never mentioned. That's that's probably it. I mean, who would want to admit they lost a war with Canada? Like that's <laughs> In fact, now that I say it out loud, I feel like we better edit it from the podcast. I'm I'm no like war war hawk, but this is embarrassing even for me. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully most of our listeners are Canadian otherwise we're in trouble. <laughs> anyway, that's enough about that. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. One of the wars that, that this is most clearly, this pattern that we t- that is pointed out by Herman Goring that we mentioned is, is so clear, is in the Mexican-America War. America-Mexico War? Mexico-America War? Now that I'm saying it, I don't know which order it's usually presented in. doesn't matter that much. It doesn't. We're talking, we're talking 1846. So President Polk was the president at this point. As a funny side note, in high school, I thought President Polk was the man on the basis that of the, like, Three things I knew about him. It was basically that he campaigned on something, he got into office, and he did all of those things, some of which were not good. But, <laughs> One but of them he being was the consistent. American War. <laughs> but he said, like, this is what I'm going to do. And you elect me for four years. I will do this and I will leave. He's elected for four years. He does it. He leaves. He dies a year later of just like seeming sheer exhaustion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's all I knew about him. I was like, wow, this guy's awesome. Uh, there's, there's high school uh, assessment of historical figures. Moral free assessment, right? That was terrible, but. So Polk, Polk wanted, among the things he, he planned to do, he was going to take the rest of Texas. Texas was annexed into the U.S. There was some disagreement with Mexico regarding that from the beginning. Uh, there's some, uh, combat. Uh, we capture a general. We force him to sign a treaty. Yeah, and this that is grants 10 years us, earlier. This is 10 years before 1846. Thank you. This is the buildup to, to what we're going to talk about. Uh, at 18, so, so the general signs a treaty giving us a, more of Mexico as part of Texas that we're, we're, yeah, so we're let's, claiming so let's it more. Let's be clear. Land. We capture a military general. That military general, while in prison, <laughs> signs a treaty, which, first of all, is under duress and so is therefore null <laughs> right. and void. Second of all, a military general cannot sign, yeah, cannot for sign a treaty. Yeah, exactly. If, if Patton had, had been captured and signed a treaty with Hitler handing over the United States, we'd been like, well, he signed it while in prison. That's, it is what it is. Sorry, Alaska, you're gone. <laughs> Right. No, no, obviously, no one would abide by those. Obviously, kind of we'd be like, that means nothing. But that's right. not and how the U.S. pitched it. The U.S. pitched it as this is, an, this is a legally binding agreement. Right. Because as soon as you do that, Mexican soldiers being on that area becomes an act of war against you. Right. You're now on the defense. Right. So, so what we do is we take our forces and we go and we make what's called uh, Fort Brown on the on the Rio Grande River there. And it's in territory across... that we claim is ours. <laughs> right. But it's is really clearly not. But that is really Mexican territory. We claim a fort and we put it across the river from a Mexican settlement. 
right? So they they have soldiers just came in, right? Soldiers just came in. They set up across the river from you in land that you know is yours. What do you do? Well, you chase them out of your land, obviously. That's what you do. Which is what Mexico did. (laughs) Which is what Mexico did or tried to do. I mean, they do wipe the fort and they, they chase a patrol and it leads to, it leads to the, the Mexico-American War, which Polk claims is a defensive war over our territory, right? We've been attacked. And he knows if he puts these soldiers there, they will be attacked because his pretext for being there is absurd <laughs> because they're not just going to give over their land to us. And so he provokes an attack, sells it as a defensive war, fights and wins the war. Just like us invading Canada was a defensive war. Just like us invading Canada was because of, of, it was a defensive act against Britain and their colony. This, this is obviously propaganda. And I start with this story of Polk because no one likes Polk. And, (laughs) (laughs) right? And everyone knows what this was. No, but everyone knows that this was a dance and he's putting on a show to make it seem like something so that he can get this land. But there are also more controversial examples of this. A great one is the Civil War. And, and the Civil War is, of course... We're jump from the most, the most easy that no one will argue with to, to the most to, controversial. No, and, 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 it's, and it's not controversial in, in many senses because the, the South left the United States so that they could engage in slavery. And they attacked the United States, thus leaving Lincoln with a clear moral choice to defend the United States and free the slaves, which is what he does. Happy birthday. Everyone wins. Go home. Right. No moral ambiguity at all. North are good guys. South are bad guys. Which is is not – Yeah, which is not how it happens. How it happens is is the South secedes something that they fully believed and – Many in the North fully believed that they were legally allowed to do. There are many newspaper articles in the North talking about the South peacefully seceding and recognizing their right to do so. They were very unhappy with it, but they recognized their legal right to do so. But but regardless of how you feel about the South seceding, it's hard to argue with the fact that it was peaceful. The South said, we want to be our own nation, and they wanted to do it peacefully. They set up their own government. There was one hiccup, though, and the hiccup was that the U.S. government, the federal government at that time, had bases on southern territory. You know, and it goes back to that thing with the the base with the Mexican-American War is that if you have a base on my land, am I really free? Am I really my own country? And Mexico was very clear that, no, we can't be our own country if we have U.S. bases on our land. And... Fort Sumter, which is, of course, the uh, the impetus for the Civil War, was just like that. Fort Sumter was actually a, a federal base that was positioned in the harbor and was in such a, such a way that it could cut off access to one of the major ports that supplied the southern states. And since one of the main reasons, and I, I feel like we're digressing here, and I don't want to go too far into the history because I could talk about, about the Civil War for a couple of hours. <laughs> Um, but but needless to say that 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 base was not just some some random base, not but it was cutting of off. It had the potential to cut off, you know, most of the trade that was going on in a large region for the South. And Lincoln specifically stated that he was going to continue to enforce the tariffs 
in the South. In other words, he was going to use that base as an instrument to tax the South. In other words, you can be your own country as long as you still recognize that you are under us, which makes no sense, obviously. And so then Lincoln goes to supply that that base and refuses to leave it, even though the U.S. had left left several bases in southern states. After the South seceded, they understood the need to leave bases. They were leaving their bases, but refused to leave Fort Sumter. You may ask the question why, and the answer is very simple, because Lincoln wanted to do the exact same thing Polk did, and he did. He left Fort Sumter intentionally. The South gave the Fort Sumter ample opportunity to leave. Yeah, warned them, asked them to leave. Lincoln went so far as to resupply Fort Sumter with more troops, more provisions, and more weapons. And at that point, which when he made it clear that he had no intention of ever abandoning Fort Sumter and was planning on using Fort Sumter as a weapon, that the South attacked Fort Sumter. And then Lincoln said, oh, whoa, they're attacking the North. We have no choice but to defend ourselves. And thus the Civil War begins. Right. In both cases, in the Civil War case, as, as you mentioned, the people did not want a war. The North did not want to attack the South uh, in general. And the average for, person for, certainly not. For very obvious reasons. You know, people talk about this as a war of, you know, brother against brother, that this is literally yeah. the same country. You know, these are this is kindred people that we're talking about. Of course, no one would want to go and kill someone that until a few days ago weren't just your allies, but, but were your fellow countrymen. Right, which gives Lincoln the same problem that Polk had. Polk, if if they knew what Polk was doing, if the average person knew, they would have stopped it, or they would have they would have done something, and they would not have supported the war. The propaganda worked, and it worked in the Civil War too. It worked in the Civil War too. It gave him. It was close. The Civil War was pretty contentious. So you starting it off, it was. Lincoln was no, struggling even, to get even support. Even after that, there were serious concerns from the North who didn't want the war even after Fort Sumter because it yes. was so controversial at the time. I mean, there's yes. a reason he had to arrest an entire state legislature in order to continue fighting the war. Yeah. Didn't he close down a number of presses as well because of what they were writing he arrested, about it? He arrested yeah. many newspaper editors and held them until the war was over for a certain length of time in order to stop them from printing things that disagreed with the war. Right. Again, in, you may think the Civil War, uh, that what ended up happening was great. And fair enough. If, if that's what you think, that's not the, it's not the argument we're going to have here today. But absolutely, the war could not have been won without propaganda and and these kind of lies and this kind of political maneuvering and then controlling the information about it later. Um, that was a fundamental part of what allowed Lincoln to get enough support for the war for it to happen. And it, and it makes so much sense because Polk, instead of doing what he did, could have gone to Congress and said, I want you to declare war on Mexico so that we can conquer some of their territory and expand the state <laughs> yeah, of Texas. Yeah. Because that's what he yeah. wanted to do. That's and just like do. Lincoln could have said, I believe that the South should not secede, which he did. I believe that we need to stop them. I want you, Congress, to declare war against the South. Or not declare war, since he technically wouldn't recognize the legality of the South. But I want you to authorize a full-on invasion of the South so that we can yes, coerce to put them down to this rebellion in the United States. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that that's the best course of action. In either case, they would not have succeeded because 
the vast majority did not want that. They didn't want that action because they didn't want war in both cases. In Lincoln's case, they wanted it much less than in Polk's case. At least in Polk's case, a lot of people did want expansion. In Lincoln's case, he had very little support for that idea. <laughs> but, Which but, but what they could do was maneuver. You know, whether yeah. or not the U.S. places a base in a certain area in southern Texas, no one cares about. You know, no one cares about individual base placements. <laughs> yes, yes. No one is paying attention. And no one's to, tracking that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like whether or not Fort Sumter is getting supplied, what exactly is happening. We're distracted by so many other things. Those nuanced decisions that actually led us to get involved in the war is not publicly being debated in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So World War One. <laughs> if you're wondering, if, if I were you at this point, I'd be asking, wait. How many wars does this apply to? How many wars started the way that Goring describes it? With U.S. leaders maneuvering things to get public opinion on their side through propaganda and lies that make it look like a defensive war when it isn't. And the answer is a lot. (laughs) Most of them. Perhaps. In, in fact, if you go back and you look at the American Revolution, very similar tactics were employed because most people didn't want to start anything with Great Britain. Yes. So yeah. what did the revolutionaries do? They created situations that would encourage the that British would force the hand to attack the British. Yes. and thus use that as evidence that they needed to fight. You know, that's what Lexington and Concord yes. were for. We assembled troops on the green so that they will shoot at us so that we can say they started this, you know, the shot hurt round the world. Yes. Yes. And and to be fair, in in that case, it is at least somewhat defensive, right? We're not invading, we're not using this as a pretext to go invade Great Britain. Um, no, absolutely but, not. But it but yes, the political maneuvering and the the controlling a Trying to get public opinion on trying your side is key. Trying to not be the person to fire the first shot. Trying to maneuver the yeah. enemy into looking like the aggressor. Yes. At least in that sense, it's a very similar tactic. Yes, yes. That they were the ones who escalated to violence. And so you have to. You don't have a choice now. You've just got to fight it with us. World War One. World War One. Uh, we were surprised as we were looking into this for this podcast because there were some details that. I mean, if I knew them, I forgot them. I don't think I knew that there was a there was such a gap between when the Lusitania was sunk and when we actually joined the war two years later. Um, but the most famous event is the Lusitania, right? The Lusitania is the cruiser that was sunk by the Germans, and which served as the. It, it we didn't get into the war immediately, but it began to turn opinion towards it, right? The the Germans mm-hmm. killed when they sunk the Lusitania. The, and the Lusitania is complicated. The Lusitania is actually a British vessel, an official British vessel that's pretending to be a neutral trade ship. Uh, and it has Americans on it, which is why it was such a big deal when it was sunk. And it also has weapons on it. It's not it just has, a passenger ship. They had no. something like four million rounds of, of uh, machine gun ammunition as well as some shells and other things. Yes. So the way it's sold to the public is... There's this harmless ship out there this with Americans ship, on it, yep. this passenger ship. And, and it's sunk by the Germans because they're ruthless and indiscriminate violence. And, and this is used to play up the kind of how people view the Germans early on in World War I. And almost none of that is, is accurate. It's, it's, yes, a boat was sunk. Yes, there were Americans on it. 
but the details around it are really complicated. Yeah, and, and so to, to, to make a, a really long story short, what happens is some ships are sunk early on, and the, the U.S. applies pressure against Germany to to change how they're fighting the war, and it temporarily works. The, the, the Germans are pressured to follow old-school rules like the cruiser rules, which require that they, when it comes to neutral merchant vessels, they can force them to turn around, or they can force them to get on lifeboats before they sink the ship, but they can't sink the ship without any warning. And yeah. that, of course, poses some some very real problems for, for Germany. Number one, Germany is using submarines to do their dirty work, and submarines are only effective when they're hidden. As soon as they surface and announce themselves, they pose the risk of getting destroyed. That's coupled with the fact that Great Britain is disguising warships as merchant ships with the intention of destroying those submarines when they surface in order to give a chance for the people to 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 abandon ship. In other words, the Germans are trying to, to save British lives and in exchange the British are tricking them in order to destroy, you know, their <laughs> submarines. And so the Germans say this is this is this is a nightmare. This isn't working for us. We need to abandon these old school rules that were not designed for this kind of war. And so they announce in 1917, this area around Great Britain, this certain area, is going to be basically a death zone. And if you are in this area, we are going to sink you, regardless of what flags you're flying, regardless of whether or not you claim you're neutral. Because we understand that the ships, the ships who are here have one purpose, and that's to supply Great Britain. And so we're going to sink them down because we are at war with right. Great Britain. That's Great contrary Britain, to... Great Britain is currently blockading us so that we can't get any supplies, you know, whether it's food or ammunition or anything from any other country. And and yet we're not allowed to do the same thing to Great Britain. No more. We're putting the foot down. We're going to sink these ships. You know you're aware, which means that if you're a neutral ship, don't come here because this is a war. Right. And let me interject one one quick fact. Absolutely. You're wondering, if you're wondering why they don't just bl blockade in the same way that Britain is blockading them – well, it's for the same reason that they can't break the blockade, right? They have they have some submarines out there, and that's all they have. They they can't compete with the British fleet. The yeah, British they, fleet they're they they're reduced the to using the, the submarines. Navy. Yes, no, they're reduced to using the submarines, and you can't blockade with submarines. You can't you can't create a wall. You can't do the the normal things. What you can do is sink ships. And in terms of war, this is a tale as old as time. That when you are the superpower, when you are the one holding all the cards, it's easy to be generous, you know, but when you are the underdog, when you are the one who is being destroyed, it's very difficult. You know, a great example of that is World War II, when paratroopers landed in Normandy before D-Day, they took very few prisoners because they had no ability to do anything with them, which meant a lot of soldiers were killed who could have been taken prisoner because they because they were just, just trying to stay alive. There's nothing they could do. And so the rules of engagement changed a little bit. And that's something that's 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 happened historically is that the rules of engagement are not set. We always talk about the rules of engagement should be this way and not this way, but we're forgetting that war is morally wrong on its face and any you know killing a person is just evil 
And so you're either doing it for a good reason or you're doing it for a bad reason is one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is that it's just it's just bad and trying to 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 color it with uh, rose colored glasses is is disguising the fact that it's still just war and right. war is war bad. is hell as they yeah, say yeah exactly yeah. but anyways so so germany changes their rules of engagement the us finds out about that germans germany starts sinking neutral us ships that are going to to uh to great britain which means they're going to supply Great Britain. They those ships understood the new rules of engagement and to- chose to take that risk anyways, probably because they were being paid very large sums of money from Great Britain for these much needed supplies in order to defeat Germany. And, <laughs> yes, certainly and so, money, and certainly some of them were uh, were patriotic and they were yeah. they were deliberately helping. Yeah, but uh, either Great way, Britain. they understood it was this for this war effort. Um, mm-hmm. The U.S you know, is being told about these ships that are being sunk. And then the U.S. finds out about the Zimmerman telegraph, which is a telegraph that was sent to Mexico from Germany saying that if the U.S. goes to war against Germany because of these new rules of engagement, because German under- Germany understood the risk as well, um, they were asking Mexico to join them in war against the United States. If that were to happen. So that combined with the ships being sunk was enough of an impetus for the president to then go to Congress and say, we need to declare war and join this battle. And and the fact of the matter is, is that once again, it's more complicated and more nuanced than Polk or Lincoln. But what we have is a similar situation where the U.S. government knows what's going on, and the U.S. government is intentionally trying to steer the U.S. into getting involved in the war. And that's a controversial statement. Lots of people can disagree. Lots of historians might disagree. But when you look at the evidence, the argument that the president was intentionally trying to keep us out of the war, that Woodrow Wilson was intentionally trying to keep us out of the war, it's very thin. It's very thin it's so to argue thin. that that's what he truly believed. Too many things that were done were designed were designed to encourage the Americans to be upset, to to want to fight. Yeah, and all and the stories told about things like the Lusitania. Uh, the Lusitania was, as I mentioned, it was a it was a British ship, and it was not. It was it. They had painted over its official name to try and disguise it. It was actually free game, even under the the rules of the time. And it's possible that the U.S. knew that. Certainly the British did, because it was, it was listed on their official registers, and they had considered outfitting it to, to be able to fight as in the manner that Brad was talking about, or blows up submarines and things to surface. Um, and if you look, at, you look at the timing of it, Woodrow Wilson was elected. And they, when he was elected for his second term, which was right before we go into this war, they're chanting, he kept us out of the war. They were so thrilled with him because he kept them out of the war. Shortly after he's elected to his second term, there's an about face and he's into the war now. That timing, along with, and you can get into some of the nuances of what he knew and when and try and get into his writings. I think there are a lot of reasons to think he, he was going with the wind until he was into his second term. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that's he, the case. Until he had enough of a, of a a justification to get into the war, yes, and, the and to make it popular, that. yeah, 
Yeah, the Germans sort of provided that, right? What they were doing actually makes perfect sense. And in, in my mind, seems like a fair wartime assessment. The U.S. could have stopped ships, U.S. ships going to going to uh, Great Britain. It didn't. Or the U.S. could have said, this is a war zone. You're supplying one side of a war. Expect the other side of the war to attack, which they did. But right. that's not how it was portrayed to the American people. No. Woodrow Wilson could have turned to the American people and said, "Listen, there's a war going on over there. These you ships walk are, into it. <laughs> these ships are basically engaging in a war effort, and so some of them are going to get sunk." No, instead, what he said is, "These are yeah. neutral American merchant ships that are getting struck down for no reason, without warning. It's it's basically piracy. Yeah. It's it's an act of war in and of itself. Therefore, we have no choice but to get involved." Yeah. His and his intentions are made clear in the in the propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. His intention to get us into the war are made clear in the fact that he's decided to lie about things that he knows in order to make the people more pro-war, in order to make the people more supportive of what he of his eventual turn towards war. And and there's no reason to do that unless that's your goal, unless you want the backing of the people in this war. Um, and then, and then, of course, we get to World War II, which, once again, you know, everyone knows it was against the most evil, the most evil government of all time. So, of course, it was good that we joined World War II. Now, you can argue back and forth about whether or not it was good that we joined World War II, but needless to say that when we joined World War II, it was for not, it was not for those reasons because we didn't know, you know, we didn't know. We definitely didn't, especially the American people, didn't know what was going on in Germany. Now, what the U.S. government knew is another thing. and But for sure, I'm, I'm overcomplicating things here. <laughs> but but for Bloody. sure but for sure the simple narrative that we're told which is that the US wanted no part in World War II because of we were stupid isolationists and then out of nowhere Japan bombs Pearl Harbor which forces us to join the war right that's the narrative that's that's told and that narrative is completely false you know as as early as the the Lend-Lease Act we were directly supporting the allies um, not just allowing, you know, uh, not just allowing companies to to trade with the Allies, but the U.S. government was actually lending resources, hence the Lend-Lease Act, to the Allied governments. We were directly supporting it through state action. Um, but then you get to our interactions with Japan. Well, the U.S. was not quite so willing to remain neutral in in the Pacific Ocean. We had a you know, we we controlled large territories over there, like like the Philippines and other areas. You know, we had different military bases over there, and we had an existing trade relationship with Japan. Well, Japan invades China, and for whatever reason, we don't like that. And so we immediately punish Japan. We institute an oil and steel embargo. We cut off all trade with Japan even though we were one of the main suppliers of Japan. On top of that, we start sending over troops and planes to our bases in the Philippines as a preemptive defense of those areas and also potentially of China. We were sending B-17 bombers to the Philippines that were within range of of Japan. You know, we were... To, to argue that we were doing nothing over there as as Japan was <laughs> yeah that we were just minding China our own business yeah is is definitely untrue we were doing everything we could 
short of directly attacking Japan to stop Japan from doing what it was doing. And once again, you can argue about whether or not we should get involved in the war, and that's one thing. Right. But but what we're arguing is that why we got involved in the war and why the American people were told we got involved in the war were two different things. That the U.S. government decided they wanted to stop Japan, and so they started doing things to stop Japan that were a direct threat to Japan – which was the impetus for Japan attacking Pearl Harbor. If we truly were neutral during the war, the war, excuse me, I'm talking too much, Japan never would have attacked Pearl Harbor. There was no reason to. The reason right. Japan attacked Pearl Harbor is because Japan felt like we were already at war with them, and so they were simply continuing that war in the most effective way that they knew. Right. Right, just to disable our closest, the f a fleet that they saw as a potential threat that could be maneuvered over to the Philippines and used against them and things. And, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, again, again, the story is that we are fighting defensively. Mm -hmm. Every time. And every time. As Herman Goring said. And the reason that that story is told is by, because of the maneuvering of politicians and people with power. And the people didn't want to every time. Mm -hmm. Just as Herman Goring said. And through the maneuvering and through the, the case that's presented as a defensive war, the leaders in the United States, in the, in one of the most, <laughs> in, during these periods, one of the most free places in the world, and perhaps in still one of the most free places in the world, one of them, um, was maneuvered into a war that the people didn't support. And yeah, they then they, supported they, it. They then supported it once the maneuvering and propaganda had been Once instigated. they had been lied to and mm -hmm. different maneuvers had gone through to make it look defensive. That, that should frighten you. It shouldn't be that easy. But we have a track record in every major war we've fought to be susceptible to it. And no, if I mean, that doesn't go I read mean, that quote again, go find Herman Goring's quote again and read it. It should chill you to the bone because it seems to be right. It seems to be that easy. Yeah, I just want to read the last that last little bit again. You know, uh, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. You know, how many times have we had that happen in the United States where the, the pacifists, the isolationists are called out for putting their heads in the sand? Um, speaking of sand, that brings us back to Afghanistan <laughs> full circle. After, after 9-11, there was, there was political um, I'm trying to think of the, the right way to phrase this, but as Dan was talking about before, that 9-11 that in and of itself was all the political instigation that was needed to encourage the people to engage in yeah. war. And that's what happened. You know, So we go and we invade Afghanistan with, with really a specific cause, which is to uh, – to overthrow the Taliban. And the argument is made to the American people that we're doing it to ca capture Osama bin Laden and we're doing it because the Taliban supported Al-Qaeda, which supported Osama bin Laden, which, you know, supported the 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 attack against 9-11. So this is a direct response yeah. to 9-11. It's, it's personal. It's personal in the sense that it's not yeah, nation it's, versus it's not, nation so it, much as it's – there are people responsible. They need to be found. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's 
It's specifically a war against the terrorists who did this. And, and of course, we, we invade, we, we overthrow the Taliban. We don't find Osama bin Laden specifically in that action. You know, um, we, and then, and then it becomes something else where we stay there and it becomes, you know, the operation enduring freedom where our goals become a little bit more nebulous. But then, of course, a little bit later, we have the Iraq war and the Iraq war is not about the Taliban. It's not about Al Qaeda. It's about Saddam Hussein, who did not instigate 9-11. There is no direct cause, but there's still a lot of political will to to do something and and the reason that's given is the weapons of mass destruction that you think 911 is bad wait until Saddam Hussein uses these weapons of mass destruction or sells these weapon, weapons of mass destruction to another terrorist who can then do even more damage to the United States and then of course we go in and there there are no weapons of mass destruction and we find out that this actually was just another lie to encourage the people to support a political action a military action that was not really about defense of the united states but was about something else entirely it's a mess it's a mess as you said when to even and the key is the key is in the propaganda there too the the, the rhetoric the way it works if bush was asked why and there's there's a great interview of him maybe i'll link it if i if i find it easily where he's asked why we went into Afghanistan and he starts to talk about 9-11. And this is years later. And someone says, a, a reporter interjects, goes, what, what does 9-11 have to do with Iraq? And he, he cuts off his tirade about terrorism around the world and goes, oh, nothing. They're unrelated. Who said it had anything to do with it? And you're like, wait, wait. I know at the time. The two were tied as closely together rhetorically as, as possible mm -hmm. as you could as you could connect it without it. And I I think there probably were many outright lies. But even without lying, there's a lot of deception that can happen. There's a lot of manipulation that can happen. A lot of dishonesty. If you reduce honesty to not don't lie, right? That's that's one thing. I don't, I think I don't think that's the complete picture of what honesty means. I think it's much more about deception. Don't deceive. And lying is just one aspect of that. And there was absolutely not only lies, but, but massive amounts of deception to channel the political will you mentioned. The people are, the people want a conflict. Well, great. We have another one in mind. We have a, we have one we can, we, that we can link in their minds and that thus we can keep the support for. Um, I didn't mention this earlier. Politicians who fight wars are popular. That's bizarre. But it's true. <laughs> if you get a war, you'll get elected again. And of course, it has to look like you didn't start the war. Yeah, it has to look if like you can but, justify a war yeah. and then fight it. You 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 do well as a politician. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so there there are political interests. Of course, there's the fame and glory of it and different things as well. But there are there are very clear political incentives that don't exist for normal people to to start these wars. And it seems time and time again, the people fall are easy prey for propaganda, easy prey for propaganda. There were, there's, I, we were on the verge of reinvading Syria. This will be the one final, one final war example. This was almost a war. 
we were on the verge of invading Syria. After we, there was Assad there, right? There was the, 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 the civil war that was breaking out there and all this, this mess of things there. And it seemed as soon as we left, we withdrew our support. Um, Russia was on one side. We were on the other. I think we were helping Assad, if I remember correctly, but the details aren't that important. But one of the things that happened as soon as we left, no, Russia was supporting Assad. We were supporting the rebels. As soon as we left, there were reports that Assad was using chemical weapons against people. Do you remember this? This ring a bell to you? Only, only faintly. I, only I, faintly. But continue. So there were reports. We leave. We withdraw our support. Immediately, there are reports that Assad is using chemical weapons on his people. I read that and I thought, Assad is either the dumbest person in the world or this is BS. This is a false flag attack. Because the worst thing he could do is bring us back into the war against him. Mm -hmm. And how would you do that? Well, you'd do something like use chemical weapons. That would be a sure way. That might be the only sure way. And so this was all over the news for a while. People were like, wow, Assad is, look, we're not helping. And Assad is just a sick maniac using chemical weapons against his people. You can find an interview with one of the generals at the time. And he's asked about the chemical weapons. He's like, why? I don't remember the, how the question was phrased. Something about why, why would Assad do this? Or, or are you going to do something to stop Assad? And he, and the general replies, he goes, we have no intelligence that says, Assad used chemical weapons. Like this has been front page news all over. You know, this, this was an atrocity that is happening. Somebody had to do something. The guy goes, you mean you're not? The, the reporter is obviously shocked by this reply. And he rephrases it and he's like, you mean you're not sure or the, the intelligence might not be credible? And he goes, no. The there general is no responds, intelligence. no. There has been no intelligence, credible or incredible that Assad has used chemical weapons. And yet there was video footage of chemical weapons being used, right? This was recorded also, on somebody's it, phone. You can see them dying. Or is it incredible? I don't know. I want to say he said incredible. We'll okay. blame him if it's uncredible. Cool. I'm pretty sure Sounds it's incredible. Good. That's the idea. Incredible. You don't believe it. It's unbelievable. Incredible. I, I, I'm just not sure, but continue. You're incredulous. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is your You're first time with actually. the English language, Dan. It doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> no, it yes, it, it, it would be great if it was consistent. If, if it, it was, was that simple. It rarely is. Uh -huh. it, this is. This was an example of, of what was clearly propaganda meant to draw us in, of which there was no evidence or little evidence. And if you were to look into it closer, what it seemed like to me was that actually there were chemical weapons being used by the rebels who were trying to frame Assad. That may or may not be the case, but that would make sense, right? The motives then make sense. You go, oh, wait, they're trying to frame Assad for this so that they get support. That makes perfect sense. Assad doing it makes zero sense. Truly the worst decision he could make. And it, and perhaps it was that that problem that it was too obvious that we ended up not not actually re-engaging. <laughs> but, but that kind of thing happens all the time. The international politics is just full of propaganda. It's full of half-truths that, that aren't quite right, that try and make it look like we're coming in as a defensive helper when the, when the reality is very different. Yeah, and, and, and the reason we're talking about all this and going through each of the individual wars, as boring as it might be, is, is because we're trying to instill the fact that 
politicians and us do not have the same purposes, do not have the same incentives, do not have the same goals in any way, shape, or form. And that's just not specifically about war. We've talked about other instances where politicians just don't have the same goals as us. But war is an extreme example of that because number one, as Dan says, politicians who who are wartime politicians, they get a huge boost. They're much more likely to stay in place, especially if it's going well. Um, and especially if it's really important. And so the bigger the war, the more likely you are to stay. Um, but on top of that, there are a bunch of other more complicated incentives. You know, um, with the Middle East, one of the reasons we keep getting involved in the Middle East is because of of the production of oil. You know, everyone talks about that as, as this joking reason, but the reason people always talk about it is because there's some truth to it, because there are reasons to care about what's happening in the Middle East. And there's a huge amount of money to be made or lost in those decisions. You know, the fact that Dick Cheney ran Halliburton is, is insane. It's insane that that's, that's public knowledge, but that doesn't make us a little <laughs> bit concerned about people's incentives. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a well-known fact that the financial connections of politicians are deeply confusing and are definitely concerning in terms of their motivations. You know, everyone understands that there's a revolving door between lobbyists and political institutions and that those lobbyists represent very powerful factions. Some of those factions, some of those lobbyists represent the, the military contractors who make billions and billions of dollars off of wartime efforts because believe it or not, when the United States was in Afghanistan for 20 years, one group that really profited was the group that supplied the air conditioning for the troops in Afghanistan. This is not a joke. This is real. That there were billions and billions of dollars that was made by air conditioning companies during those 20 years. And it's silly. It's just one small aspect of that. But when billions and billions of dollars are on the line. Yeah, trillions often with wars, right? With yeah, but I'm we, just talking about for specific groups. For, for specific billions groups, yeah. Of for, dollars. A, for a small group of people, relatively small group of people, that is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And so when you have mm -hmm. many of those groups that are all benefiting in different ways, and they all have lobbyists who have the ears of these powerful yeah. politicians – and who, and like I said, with the Halliburton thing, sometimes these politicians are directly financially benefiting from these decisions. It's going to cloud their decisions. It's going to make them make decisions that you as an individual would not make because you as an individual are the one who has to go and bleed and die for this war while yeah. the president or the congressman or whoever – is not going to die from this war, but they could not only politically, but also financially benefit in many different ways. Yeah, it's sick. It's a, it's a good example of the principle of diffused costs and concentrated benefits. The costs Absolutely. of the war are spread out across the whole economy. There is going to be somewhat concentrated on the soldiers, but there are a lot of soldiers. And, uh, and then it's uh, the benefits are concentrated in the hands of very small groups of people who gain a ton. That gives them a strong incentive to push for it but gives everyone else a weak incentive to fight for the, to fight against it, right? The costs are not that high personally in many cases. So what's the incentive for you to fight against? Well, it's low, but the people who benefit are reaping massive benefits. And, uh, and so there's a massive 
incentive for them to fight for, to push for the things they want. This happens at every level of government and economics, every, every business pushing regulation, every, you know, every body that has a stake, stake in it and benefits enough to pay a lobbyist, right? Which is a very expensive and competitive thing. But, but it's worth it to them. It's not worth it to you to yeah, pay a lobbyist to go of, counter because it. Because <laughs> of those focused benefits. Yeah. Yeah, the focus because of those billion dollar contracts. Right, it's it's a principle of government that that Madison did not anticipate. Unfortunately, when he was he talks about the Constitution and how the factions will fight amongst each other. No, those concentrated benefits, those people will get together and they'll work together. Yeah, they'll they'll make agreements <laughs> because the benefits right. are so large and so concentrated. Right, and you'll see it when they pass the omnibus bills that are many many pages, where all the people who benefited are getting their cut. A huge number of people ultimately. But really, only a small per percentage of the whole population. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 rough. You should be skeptical of wars. If the U.S. is pushing for it, we we have a desperate need for good reporters. Truly desperate need for good information on the ground in difficult to reach places, in places where often we're reliant on government's word, where we're reliant on military intelligence. I think of Clarissa Clarissa Ward. I think her name is. Uh, who we mentioned last time, who was on the ground in Afghanistan. That video footage is invaluable. It's, you can't replace that. You can't, uh, on the ground accounts are so useful and you need them from sources other than those that are connected to the people in power. No. And, 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 and the problem, Dan, is that we were only getting that footage from CNN after mm -hmm. all the decisions were made. You know, we, we got that information <laughs> yeah, just yeah, yeah, in yeah. time to just in time to see the effects. The fact. Yeah. Yes, to see the effects, not to see the process and not to see. Yeah. And that's the problem. Just like the weapons of mass destruction. Okay, we can we can, you know, safely say they weren't there, you know, two years after we invaded. And that's <laughs> yes. and that that doesn't help us really at all. The only way that it can help us is to help us be skeptical the next time we're told we have a clear and yes. present danger and have to you know, and have to go invade, you know, Thailand now, you know, before all heck breaks loose. Yeah. Whatever. How clear, how clear really is the danger and how present? Because all, all of these were sold that way. Mm -hmm. All of these were. No, and, and uh, there's, and there's lots of wars that we, we didn't cover this time. We didn't talk about Vietnam. We didn't mm -hmm. talk about Korea. We didn't talk about the Spanish American war, you know, the most famous one. Um, you know, there's a few others that, that, that we haven't covered. Dan, you didn't even chuckle at my Spanish American war joke. <laughs> no one ever talks about the Spanish American war. And I kind of wish I'd brought it up. Maybe we'll want, we'll mention it another day. <laughs> just but, to uh, say we did. Just to say we did. No but, one cares about this, but we're going to say it because we care. It, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I like that hill to die on, Brad. Let's die on it. I, I plan on it. It seems comfy. <laughs> But but anyways, but there's there's similar patterns, especially when you're talking about the pattern of of the the American people being told one thing when in reality it being a completely different right. thing. That pattern holds true. There's different ways that it's been implemented, but the disconnect is almost always there in some degree or another. It really is. It really is. And those words should you should remember those words of Herman Goring. They're dude was a creep. <laughs> Second hand to Second in command to Hitler, you've got to be a kind of messed up dude. But he was right. And man, Hitler was another one who was just brilliant at political maneuvering. Just extraordinarily yeah, in the Machiavellian sense of someone yes. going for power. They understood power. They understood how it was. They did. They could was, play the game was like controlled. Nobody. And they knew how to capture an entire population 
in a way that no one else has ever really matched. You know what I mean? Hitler's <laughs> control over his people, his ability to to utilize propaganda was so incredibly effective. Yeah, yeah and- to capture ordinary people, ordinary men really, and women. There's the book Ordinary Men about just average Germans and how they get pulled into it and to the stories and become become monsters. And it's it's terrifying. And on that sobering note, I suppose, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.